0: Hey guys, I'm Lorena, and thanks for checking out this message today. We're so glad that you're here, and we want to connect with you and your family. So please text RIVERCONNECT to 97000, and you can also um, visit our website at theriverchurch.cc to learn more about us and all the upcoming events we have. And lastly, if you want to give to the River Church today, you can text the amount you want to give to 84321, or you can head to our website and click the Give tab at the top of the page. Uh, Thanks again for joining us, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Morning, everybody. You got a Bible? Let's grab them and open up to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter number four. Great to see you today. If you don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you. You can share with someone sitting near you or next to you. Or you can take out your smartphone. You can download a Bible app or the River Church app, and there's a Bible feature on there. But want you to be seeing and encountering the Word of God for yourself. And uh, great to have you here today. If you're a guest, want to welcome you. If you're watching online, want to welcome you as well. Want to encourage you to be part of tonight. Um, so we got Pizza Palooza right here in this room tonight at 6 o'clock. So great opportunity to get connected. Would love to uh, hang out with you tonight. So tonight at 6 o'clock. Uh, Right here. Colossians chapter number four, and we're going to begin reading in verse number two. The Bible says this Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. On account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So the book of Colossians is a letter from the Apostle Paul written to Christians in the city of Colossae. It is a city that by the time Paul writes to them, their heyday has long passed. So they're more of a small town town. Uh, Some uh, Bible scholars believe that it's essentially the smallest town that Paul ever writes to. And so near them was the city of Laodicea. It was a much bigger, much more prominent city. And we know some of the city of Laodicea, particularly from the book of Revelation. So Paul is writing there. He's never been there. And he has not met these Christians face to face. So here's how the church, we think, uh, was born Paul was for uh, two, three years in the city of Ephesus, which was a little bit west of Colossae. He was there preaching and ministering. People were traveling through. They were coming through town. They heard the gospel. They were born again. And so there's a couple guys. There's a guy named Epaphras. He's mentioned a couple times in the book of Colossians. And then a guy named Philemon, who Paul would also write a letter to. And what we put together, kind of the pieces together, is we think they heard the gospel, came to know the Lord, went back to their hometown of Colossae, and the church was born. They began to share the gospel with their friends and neighbors, and people came to understand and know Jesus, repent of their sins, and follow the Lord. And so that's kind of how the church was born. And so Paul writes to them. And it is interesting to me when I think about this that Paul has not seen them face to face. And he acknowledges that in chapter 2 and verse 1. So there's some interesting dynamics. So Paul has kind of, you can kind of guess at it, take a stab at it. Paul kind of probably has this kind of mythological um, kind of you know reputation in Colossae. Uh, Paul is traveling around. Paul is uh, at times doing miracles. Paul's casting out demons. Paul is... Uh, prominent, well-known, his story is epic of his conversion. All of these different things with Paul. So you can imagine, in the city of Colossae, the Colossians view him with kind of this awe and this sense of a kind of respect. And there's probably also some others that are like, I've never met him before. I, this is the rumor I heard about him, or you know, this is the the reputation that I think he has, or I think this is overblown. And so it's kind of a, when I read this letter, it's an interesting dynamic to know that he's writing to people only a handful of which he's ever seen face to face. Well, he's coming to the end of the letter, Colossians chapter four, verse two, and he is gonna challenge the church on a couple different things here. And then in verse seven down to the end of the chapter will be some personal things, some personal greetings. You'll see a lot of different names, some of which are difficult to pronounce. And that's pretty typical with Paul's letter that he'll end with kind of some greetings and uh, some specific advice to specific people. But here he says in chapter 4, verse 2, he challenges the church to continue steadfastly in prayer. To continue steadfastly in prayer. Now for us as a church, each year we take January and September and we preach the vision of the church. You'll see and hear the words reach, gather, grow often. And we see that being the vision of what Jesus has for us. The church. And when we say the church, we're not talking about a building or a brand or an organization. We're talking about people who have repented of their sins and believed in Jesus. People have turned from sin and turned to the Savior. You we don't we don't go to church, I often say we we are the church. So if you know Christ, you are the people of God, you are the saints, you are the church. So that's why we call this a gathering. We're gathering together as the church. And so each year, September, January, we talk about the vision of the church because we think it's important to remember what we're supposed to be doing. A lot of churches become, um, you know, drift from the mission. A lot of people, a lot of Christians drift from the mission of what the Lord has called us to do. And so we spend those two months talking about What we believe is rooted in the Great Commission of Matthew 28: go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, and then teach them what I taught you. Kind of a little paraphrase of what Jesus says there in Matthew 28. So we express that in these words: reach. We want to reach the lost, we want to reach the world with the gospel. We want to gather together uh, as God's people. And then we want to grow. We want to grow in our love for one another. We want to grow in our love for Christ. We want to grow in our understanding of the Scripture. But we also want to be growing in our gifting, growing in how God has gifted us through the power of the Holy Spirit. This last summer, I know I'm connecting a lot of different thoughts here, so hopefully you are tracking with me. This last summer on my kind of annual summer sabbatical, I get away, I turn off my phone, and I really just spend some time Decompressing for me unwinding and reading the Bible without thinking about preparing a sermon. Um, I read some books. My wife tells me that they can't be church-related books. So I spent my first week reading a biography of an Anglican pastor. She said that's too church-related. Uh, so I said, okay. So I spent the next few weeks reading uh, seven fiction books. And uh, one of them was an incredible challenge to me Um, that I hope over the next few weeks to share with you. I'm thankful for our church. And when I say our church, again, I'm not talking about this building or the brand or organization or anything. I'm talking about you. And here we are. We're part of a multi-site church right now. There are uh, eight other locations meeting. And I'm so thankful that I know that there are eight other guys Standing today, opening the Word of God and preaching the Word of God. Like I it's just it brings me such a peace and an excitement to have that confidence that I know that the Word of God is being opened in all of those places. The 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 true, pure gospel is being preached without any sort of apology. That, That brings me so much joy. And so I'm thankful to be part of a preaching church that we preach the Word of God. But I was really convicted this last um, this, this summer about becoming a praying church. And I realized that we can talk about the mission until we're blue in the face. And we do talk about the mission a lot, but the reality is we will never, you and I, as God's people, as the church, we will never accomplish the mission unless we are a praying people. We never will. We'll never reach the world with the gospel. We'll never gather in the way God has designed us to gather. We'll never grow to be the mature, steadfast, stable believers that God has called us to be unless we're a praying people. So over the next few weeks, we're going to look at kind of three occurrences in the book of Colossians where Paul is challenging. He's also modeling prayer. But here it is in verse 2. That's kind of the framework with which I'm approaching this passage. Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Now, hold your spot there, and I want you to go back to the Gospel of Luke. A couple spots there. Luke chapter 18, we'll start there. So in that charge there, Paul is kind of encouraging them. He doesn't say, start praying steadfastly. He says, continue. So it's this encouragement that this is a praying people. Uh, To the church at Ephesus, Paul says in Ephesians 6.18, he says, Praying at all times. To the Thessalonican church, Paul says, Pray without ceasing. We'll talk about what that means in just a moment. But it's this challenge for God's people to be continually steadfast in prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is fellowship and communion with God. Sometimes we think about a prayer like a, like a text, or a prayer like a letter, or a prayer like an email. There's the greeting, and then there's the conclusion, and we set it aside. The prayer, the, the, the idea that the scripture is talking about being steadfast, continuing steadfast in prayer, or praying without ceasing, is to be in constant fellowship and communion with God. Meaning that conversation doesn't really have a beginning and an end, it just continues. It's a, it's a lifestyle of fellowshipping, of walking with the Lord. Well, the scripture says there to pray steadfastly. Jesus gives a parable in Luke 18, which I a couple of these teachings here Jesus gives make me smile. I just find them humorous in some ways. Luke 18, verse 1. And he told them, so this is Jesus, a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. I don't know about you, but there have been times where I have been discouraged to pray because I've lost heart, meaning something I was seeking the Lord for didn't seem to be coming to fruition, didn't seem to be working out, things seemed to be falling apart when I thought they should have been coming together. So Jesus is going to tell a parable here for his audience and for us, encouraging teaching that we ought to always pray and not to give up, not to lose heart. So he said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. So a widow at this time would have been someone who had very, very little legal standing and very weak kind of social standing and power to kind of impact or affect something to happen. Verse four, for a while... He refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. I don't know why I find that humorous, but it's just, you got Nagatha Christie here in the story is what I'm gonna call her, okay? And so the thing is for... Jesus is saying, listen, here's how I want you to view prayer and not giving up. Imagine there is a judge who doesn't fear God, so he's not a righteous man, and he doesn't have any respect for any people. So you're not going to go at him from a religious angle. You're not going to go at him from a, a societal pressure angle. This guy is just he's just a jerk. He's just just isolated from people, doesn't fear God, all those different things. And you have a widow, someone from very low social standing, who goes to this judge and says, give me justice. What's he going to do? I'm not giving you justice. I don't care about God's command to care for widows, and I don't really care about people either. Well, what's the passage? She keeps coming to him. She keeps beating him down by her continual... So every morning, it's like you can just picture it in in our context. He goes into the office, and and his secretary or assistant comes in and says, hey, uh, she's back, and she won't leave the waiting room. And she just sits there all day. Like, she is just constantly doing it constantly calling, constantly emailing, constantly, constantly... Approaching the judge. And so the judge finally says, I just want to be done with this lady. I'm going to give her justice, not because I care about God, not because I care about her, but because I don't want to be bothered anymore. So Jesus says, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, verse six. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. So the challenge is what? Go back to verse one. To the effect, the story is a challenge to always pray and to not lose heart, to not give up. I'll go back a few chapters to chapter number 11. Luke chapter 11 in verse number five. So right before this is Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer, which we will actually look at in just a few weeks. Look at verse 5. He said to them, so Jesus is speaking here, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are in bed, are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Impudence could be translated persistence. So the idea is here in this visual, a friend knocks on your door at midnight. Hey, some people just showed up at my house, I need to borrow some food, I need some bread, I need some milk, I, got, I need some eggs. And you're in bed and you're like, go away. Like, it's midnight. No, seriously, I need some food, I got guests over here, and I'm not leaving until you open the door. You're not gonna get out of bed because you love the friend. Matter of fact, that's the last time I would ever talk to that friend, it'd be that night. Here's your food, lose my number, Right. But the challenge is persistence leads to a response. Verse 9, I tell you, Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find, knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now Let's go back to Colossians and thinking about this teaching here of prayerful persistence or persistence in prayer. Paul says to the church there in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer. Pray always. Don't cease to pray. Persist in prayer steadfastly. So the call to you and I is to not pray once and be like, oh, it didn't happen. God doesn't answer prayer. It's to keep coming to the Lord, to be persistent in that. So, verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer. Paul says, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So, watchful in prayer. So, there's persistence or there's steadfast in prayer, and then there's being watchful in prayer. To be honest with you, I read this, I kind of struggled. Like, <laughs> this is how silly I can be sometimes when I read things. Being watchful in prayer. Aren't I supposed to close my eyes? You ever do that at the drive-thru? You go through and you get food and you're like, we should pray. I won't pray with my eyes closed driving down the road. So sometimes this is what a legalist I am recovering from being. I'm like, well, if I close one eye, is it half a prayer? You know, is there like credit, you know, ridiculous stuff. So when I read this, be watchful, I thought, okay, Lord, what are you, what are you talking about? And a great note from one of my favorite commentators, Kent Hughes, he says this. He says, being devoted to prayer does not mean the mind goes into devotional neutral, while an easy stream of conscious flows between us and God. So it's not like, all right, God, I'm shutting off my mind, and I'm just going to kind of sit here, and, and that's me praying. He says this, rather, a habit of prayer demands mental alertness to the dangers of life and the needs of those around us, an awareness that can at any moment launch us into a fervent prayer. This is not meant to make anyone feel guilty at all, but how many times have we fallen asleep praying? That's not to make you feel like a loser. I'm glad you were praying. But that's not being watchful. Even Jesus, when he goes to Gethsemane and prays, he says to the disciples, What? Keep watch with me. This morning, I was praying for you. I was praying for the day. I was thanking God for our teams that show up early and work hard to make sure everything's set up and sharp and music and tech and kids stuff and security and guest services and all the, all the different teams that are here doing things. And then I find myself getting distracted. Like here I am, the pastor, praying this morning about you and praying for the sermon. I'm like, that's a dent in that wall. <sighs> we probably should get someone here with some, and mud. and No, no, I'm praying. Dear Lord, thank you for this team. It's just so great. That light's out. Why is that light out? And I just started confessing to the Lord. Lord, I am so easily distracted. Here I am speaking to the God of the universe who sent his only begotten son to die for me Jesus rose from the dead, the one who holds me together, the one who holds the world together, the one who holds the universe together. All of this, he he is the one holding together. And I'm getting distracted by a light that's out. So what's the call in God's word here when it comes to praying, speaking to the Lord? Continue steadfastly in prayer and be watchful. Be watchful. Why? Because there's going to be distractions. It may even become to the point of temptation. And so I love how uh, Hughes says that. He says, the habit of prayer demands mental alertness. So focusing. So another component of prayer here. So continue steadfastly in prayer. Be watchful in it. And then there is thanksgiving in prayer. There is thanking God for things. Go back to Colossians chapter 1. I just want you to see this. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 3. Lord willing, this is the passage we'll look at next week. But look at what Paul says. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Look down at verse number 12. First phrase there, giving thanks. Look over at chapter 2 and verse number 7. We looked at this a couple weeks ago, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Chapter 3, verse number 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then we see it again in chapter 4, verse 2, where we started, being watchful in it with thanksgiving so we see steadfast persistent prayer we see being watchful in prayer and now we see being thankful in prayer oftentimes when i pray it will become all about requests the bible does say we approach god and we're able to make our requests known to him so this is not, please don't be dissuaded or discouraged from asking God for things because he is the source of all things. So we can go to God and we can, we can make petitions, we can ask for things. But how much time do we spend in prayer thanking God for what he's done for us? Thanking God for what we have. Thanking God for our family. Thanking God for our jobs. Thanking God for these things. Oftentimes, and it's okay to sometimes complain to God. We can come to God and say, God, my boss is a jerk. I'm sure Keaton does it all the time. But, uh, so, God, my boss is a jerk. I, I don't know how to do this. right. There are those prayers where we struggle and we lament things and we wrestle with the Lord on some stuff. But how often do we spend time just going to God and saying thank you? thank you for our church thank you for this wonderful air conditioning in this room right now sorry that was a cheap shot so you. all right how do how often do we thank god for our home thank god for our spouse our children any health that we have our country, our leaders. The Bible says there a really challenging phrase, abounding in thanksgiving. So let's go back to the passage, chapter 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And then Paul says this, at the same time. So in your prayers, as you're thanking the Lord for things, as you're staying steadfast in prayer, as you're being watchful for other people, man, I'm seeing this going on in their life, I'm gonna be praying for them. Or the Spirit of God is speaking to you and you feel challenged, man, I need to be praying for so-and-so right now. Or the Lord's put this person on my heart, I don't even know what's going on in their life, but I'm gonna bring them to the throne. Verse three, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. So Paul writes a letter to people he's not met before. And he encourages them how to pray steadfast, watchful, and thankful. And then he invites them into really we would call it, and I'm not trying to use a buzzword here, but missional prayer. Like, pray for the advancement of the mission. And Paul, who I'm sure some of these people in Colossae viewed him as kind of this superhero Christian, he says, listen, I, w- I want to invite you to, to be on our team. And, and, and at the same time as you're staying steadfast and thankful in your prayers, I, I want you to pray for us. And here's what I want you to pray specifically for us. Pray for us that God may open a door to us, right? Open to us a door for the word. He's saying, I want you to pray that a gospel opportunity presents itself. Now, where is Paul right now? He's in prison. This is one of his prison letters. So he's, he's writing. Some people have come to visit him. He's sending them back to their different towns with different letters But he's in prison. Now, later on, we think he'll get out of prison and he'll come back to prison. And eventually, we think, historically, that he was executed in kind of the mid to late 60s of the first century. But Paul's in prison. It's discouraging. It's confining. This is a guy who's traveled around the known world proclaiming the gospel, going into different... Towns and cities and encountering people and and sharing the hope of Jesus with them, now he's in prison. And so he doesn't say, hey, by the way, while you're in steadfast prayer, while you're in thankful prayer, while you're in watchful prayer, pray for us, I want to get out of jail. He says, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery on account of which I am in prison. He prays for a gospel opportunity to declare the good news of Jesus. Now go back to Colossians chapter number one because he uses that phrase, the mystery, and this is something that Paul will use in several different letters, but here he will share it in chapter number one. Let's just pick up in verse number 24. Kind of, that's where the thought kind of goes. Chapter 124. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. So this is a rich mystery. This has been a hidden mystery. Paul is saying, I get to be a steward of this mystery. I get to proclaim this mystery. And then here he's gonna define what the mystery is. So this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So this is what he is striving for, and this is the message. The message is what? That Jesus came, that Jesus died on the cross That Jesus was buried and Jesus rose from the dead. And you'll see this kind of unfolded or unpacked in, in different parts of the book of Colossians. He's saying, this is the mystery. God sent his son to do that. And if you'll come to Jesus, you will join him in a death. Now, Paul's saying that might in some cases be a physical death, but he's talking about a spiritual death. He's saying the old you will die, and in Christ you will be raised to walk in the newness of life, is what he tells Romans. To the Corinthian church, he says, you'll become a new creation. Here to the Colossian church, he says, you will have Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's like, this is a profound mystery. So Paul says, listen... Be in steadfast, thankful, watchful prayer that God will open a gospel opportunity for us. Now, what does Paul do in that prayer? Go back to chapter number four, verse three. He says, we want to have an opportunity to declare that mystery. But guess what? We know that God is the one who gives that opportunity. So this is a prayer for a gospel opportunity, but it's also an acknowledgement that God has to be the one to open the door. Amen. So God, God we, we really want you to open that door. Some of us more forceful people, we like to kick doors in. As opposed to being patient and saying, Lord, I need you to open that door. Paul would use this same kind of visual at the end of his letter to the Corinthian church. You don't have to turn there. You just jot it down. You know it's 1 Corinthians sixteen nine. Paul says, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. So there's kind of the, uh, the hint there that God is the one that's opened that. And he says, and there are many adversaries. So he says, there's been a wide door of effective work. We know there's going to be problems. We know there's going to be trials. We know there's going to be adversaries and difficulties. But God's opened this door. So Colossians chapter four, pray for a gospel opportunity, acknowledge, it's an acknowledgement that God has to be the one to open the door. It's also a challenge to them to know that there's a cost to that. And then Paul super humbly says in verse four, pray that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So what's Paul saying? Pray for a gospel opportunity for us and pray that when I get the chance to share the gospel, I'm clear. I won't have you raise your hands, but I've had this conversation with lots of people over the years. There are many people, many Christians who care that their friends and family know the Lord because they see heaven and hell is in the balance. So they want their friends and family. They want their kids, grandkids, neighbors, cousins, mom, dad, to know the Lord, to hear the good news of the gospel and repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. Want that, but there's a lot of people who just go, yeah, I I don't know how to do that. And so it's like, oh man, I hope they get saved, but I hope somebody else has the gospel opportunity because I wouldn't know what to say what do you see with the prayer here? Pray for an open door. And also pray when that door opens that you'll know what to say. That you'll be clear. And Paul says, which is how I ought to speak. What's Paul implying there? Sometimes he's not clear. Sometimes he botches it. We've all been there. Different opportunities the Lord's given me, and I leave there and go, Lord, I'm an idiot. Like, please send someone else next time because I, wow. I'm not saying this because I'm fishing for anything. There are times where I preach, and my wife knows this to be true, where I'll go home and be like, I need to find something else to do because that was awful. You just feel inadequate, you feel lame. And oftentimes, I mean, sometimes that can come from just a a, a sinful sense of kind of uh, insecurity. But sometimes that comes from not having prepared in prayer. Lord, please open the door. But please help me to know what to say and how to say it when the moment comes. One of my favorite preachers in history is a man named Charles Spurgeon. He was a preacher in London and had a significant impact in England and then around the world. His sermons are still published and just incredible devotions and books and commentaries and all these different things. Sadly, he died before voice could be recorded, so we don't know what he exactly sounded like. But he preached to thousands of people every single week. I mean, just an ex- extraordinary preacher. Died before he was 60 years old. Uh, his church continues on today in London called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. So, significant impact. So, whenever there's a, a larger church like that, people want to come and they want to see uh, how's this happening? Like, what are you doing? What's, what's the secret sauce, if you will? And so, people would come to Spurgeon. And and they would ask, you know, what what are you doing? And I'm sure they had lots of questions about lots of different things. And he was known for taking them to the basement. So, you know, when I go to a a church, like, the first thing I want to see is I want to see the auditorium. Like, the last thing I want to see is the basement. If we miss the basement, that's okay. But I want to see the auditorium. I want to see what it looks like. I want to see what you preach behind. Like, that's just me as a, a pastor preacher. So... The legend is that Spurgeon would get these guys in and he would take them to the basement and he would invite them to go down and see the boiler room. Now, a boiler room in London in the mid to late 1800s would probably be the dirtiest, nastiest room in the building. But he would go downstairs and he wouldn't take them to the physical or literal boiler room. That's where they thought, I guess, they were going. But they would go down to this basement room and he would call it... The powerhouse. And it's a place where before their church gathering began and during, people would assemble to pray. I've been really convicted. that I think we know what the mission is. The mission is to take the gospel into the world and see it transform people's lives. The good news of Jesus, that sinners can be saved. The good news is always preceded, of course, by the bad news. The bad news is that all have sinned but that God so loved you and me that he sent his only son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Or as it says in Colossians chapter two, so beautiful, verse 14, this is what God did. God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. Well, how could a holy God do that? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside. How could God forgive us? How could God cancel our debt? Here's the phrase, Paul says, by nailing it to the cross. Man, that's what we celebrate every single week. If you're here and you know Christ, that ought to stir something Thrilling in your heart that you had a record of sin debt standing against you. And maybe you're here and you have that right now. You feel that weight and that burden of sin on your shoulders. You feel as if you stand before God as a sinner. And maybe your idea, your path is to be a good enough person. The Bible says, there is none righteous, no not one. And so God sent his holy son to die on the cross and to bear the penalty for sin on the cross. And Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose from the dead. And if you will repent of your sin, meaning turn from sin and turn to Jesus as Lord and believe that he died and rose again, you'll be saved. That's the guarantee. That's the gospel. But here's what I want you to understand. I believe we're on mission. I believe we are clear with the gospel. I believe we're a church that's committed to preaching the word But I believe we need to become a people that are steadfast and watchful and thankful in prayer. Because we'll never accomplish the mission unless we know the source. The powerhouse is prayer. So I think we should pray. Each Sunday, my wife and I, we started getting here at 9 o'clock, an hour before our gathering starts. Keaton this morning and I spent a few minutes in prayer together in one of the classrooms, praying for you, praying for you, specifically if you're sitting here watching online you don't know the Lord, praying that you would repent of your sins and believe in Jesus and be saved. We may not have known your name or had your face in our hearts and minds, but we're praying for you. But I believe we have to become not just a preaching church, but we have to become a church that's watchful, thankful, and steadfast in prayer if we want to make the kind of significant impact that I believe we can. And so let's do this. Let's, um, let's pray together. And um, maybe for you, that means bringing your family. You can come pray in the front if you'd like to, or maybe that's gathering in your seats with people that are around you and praying together. Um, One of the most important things for me when it comes to prayer is that you know that God is not judging your grammar. We just speak to the Lord. And so maybe it's just grabbing your wife's hands and saying, let's pray together and leading her in prayer. Maybe it's you're here with a friend and just sliding together and say, hey, let's, let's pray together. Let's pray for so-and-so who doesn't know the Lord. Let's pray for a gospel opportunity this week at school. Let's pray for a gospel opportunity in our neighborhood. Let's pray for a gospel opportunity at work this week. And let's pray. I'm super nervous. Let's pray that we know what to say. That God will give us the right words to say. That we'll be faithful to the gospel. I want to encourage you, you don't have to be ashamed to pray out loud. I remember going to prayer meetings when I was a kid, and I thought, man, I don't know these big words. I better dig deep. I think I used omnipotent. No one was impressed, including God, who is omnipotent. <laughs> sometimes we think we have to impress the ones who are listening. You're not praying for the benefit of the ears of someone sitting around you. You're speaking to God who loves you and knows you. And maybe for you today, it's coming to God and saying, God, I am a wreck. Maybe you're in a season of just joy right now. So God, I have so much to thank you for. Maybe the Lord right now is putting a family member or a friend or a neighbor on your heart who doesn't know the Lord. Maybe that person is sitting in this room right now. Let's take the next couple seconds to pray. Like I said, if you want to come up here, you can. You want to gather around the room just and pray. But don't be embarrassed to just pray for a few moments, and then we'll stand together and we'll sing to the Lord, okay? Let's let's go into prayer.